Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And today we're gonna to talk about the Apple Watch Ultra reviews that are out, some of the details there. We've spent a week now with iPhone 14 Pro. We're gonna give our thoughts on that and some updates to iOS 16.1, watchOS 9, and more. This episode is brought to you by Magic Lasso, Adblock, Helix Sleep, and the application I'm using to record this episode right now, Audio Hijack by Rogue Amoeba. You'll hear about them in a moment. And joining me with a big iPhone 14 Pro Max review published on the site, Wes Hilliard, how's it going, Wes? I'm okay, Steven. Survive the weekend of running around, taking photos, and writing up this review. That's right. This was like your first big official review, right? This is my first like Apple product review. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. We're going to get to the iPhone 14 and all that in a moment, but we also have some other news. I want to talk about the Apple Watch Ultra reviews that are coming out. And as you listen to this episode, and supporters, you get it Thursday afternoon free on Friday. If you listen on Friday, I'm getting an Apple Watch Ultra delivered today. I'll be watching the UPS man like a hawk, like I did last week for my 14 Pro. Now, did you already get uh, an updated Apple Watch last Friday? Yes, I got the uh, Apple Watch Series 8. Series 8. Oh my goodness, we should talk about that as well. Real quick, some five-star review shout-outs. Forgive me, I actually translated this name using Safari Translate <laughs> and because it is in Japanese. But Nayuki Watanabe from Japan. Thanks for your five-star review. That's amazing. Malcolm Harrow, he's actually a Brit who lives in Hong Kong, which is amazing. He heard that I mentioned maybe every British person had given us a five-star review already. Well, he wanted to add his five-star because uh, there's still some Brits out there who have not. So thank you for that. And Hostilian from the USA. That's very cool. And also last episode, we talked about keeping Apple boxes. And there were some great submissions. Uh, people tweeted at me, DM me, and emailed me some of the pictures of their Apple Boxes collection. And there are some impressive collections of Apple Boxes. I'm looking at some even with like old iPhones, like iPhone 3GSs and such. Lots of boxes. And then also some that were like, you know, I just threw away a bunch because it was just becoming too much. And that's typically how I've been airing recently is to throw away my boxes. unless. I don't know. I like, I can't bring myself to throw away the iPhone box. Like as soon as I get it. So I have my iPhone 14 pro box. I still have my iPhone 13 pro one too. I guess I can get rid of that. I don't know, Wes, what's your practice with boxes? Well, they're all just trash. I, I don't really keep anything unless like uh, maybe like a two week return window just in case. But after that, they're gone. Storing a bunch of cardboard doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I know, but it's still, it's still just something. This one from uh, Mr. Jeff Wilson on Twitter, he had his Mac OS nine box where back when Mac OS would come on a CD ROM and you would install it. And I also see an original iPhone box. I don't know. Some of these things are nostalgic. When I have an old box, like I actually still have an iLife 09 CD ROM. I keep that. Well, it makes you wonder, like we're nostalgic for things from the two thousands, but, um, in 2050, will we will we be looking back on the iPhone 14 box and thinking, wow, just nostalgic, you know? Yeah, my, probably not the 14, but I think the original will still have. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, if you have the first of anything, I would say keep the th right. keep the box. I still have my Apple Watch plastic case because they used to come in these little plastic like snap cases. Yes. I still have the original Apple Watch, one of that and the band case that came in. A couple things like that, but no, I don't really keep any of my boxes. I don't have any first of products either. So I guess, you know, I was late to the Apple game, so I don't really have any like super special boxes to keep either. I do have my original Apple watch box as well. Cause again, like I reviewed the generation zero, the very first one in stainless steel. And that one did come in like this almost jewelry style case with felt lining the entire box. And it was very, it's a nice case. And also it was nostalgic cause it was like the original one. So yeah, I, I keep that one. I also still have my AirPods Max box. I feel like I probably don't need to keep that. Did you keep yours? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's time. My closet has a couple of like, uh, I have an office closet and there's like a couple of things in there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, again, just mostly review items and things just in case like I'm about to mail something or whatever. But yeah, I don't really keep any of these boxes. Just not enough space. And I live in uh, an area out in the country near a farm. And so spiders are a thing so you keep anything like that like in, in a enclosed space you're going to find they're making a home out of your uh, boxes <laughs> right. i mean you in florida you probably just that that's an alligator house right that's basically that's exactly what you're building right. yeah yeah you don't even need a box they'll just climb right up in your lawn and in your pool so <laughs> uh, videos all over about that but the, so the initial reviews for the apple watch ultra came out and i want to talk about them obviously i'll have an apple watch ultra in hand so i can tell you my personal thoughts on the next episode but lots of great reviews out there. I watched MKBHD, iJustine, 
Lexi from CNET actually had a really great review. She used the Waypoint Finder, hiking in the woods, marked waypoints, and then used the Backtrack feature, which the Apple Watch Ultra, without any cellular or any kind of Wi-Fi signal, just with the GPS, and it has the L1 and L5 GPS bands. And she actually tested the accuracy of the Apple Watch Ultra versus a Series 7 or 8, I believe, like in a city center. And the Ultra was more accurate because of that extra GPS band. But she had a great review. I just seen swam in a pool and the depth sensor activated even in pretty shallow water. I was curious if I would be able to see that feature diving like three feet. I didn't know if you, need, if you needed to scuba or if you could just do a diving in a pool. And she went in the pool with her Apple Watch Ultra. The diving and temperature sensor, water temperature sensor activated as soon as she was in the water and it said three feet down, water temperature 86 degrees. So overall, it was very interesting to see these reviews. I think the biggest takeaway, the action button. Having another button that you can dedicate to a command is kind of a big deal. You can dedicate it to a shortcut, literally running a shortcut on the Apple Watch Ultra. You can have it mapped to the workout and there's lots of other options for it. But the action button and the battery life seem to be the these really standout features. I mean, MKBHD, he said he got over 48 hours of battery life still using the Apple Watch Ultra, even during two Ultimate Frisbee trainings, which were like three hours long. He did that on a Saturday and a Sunday ran a workout on the Apple Watch Ultra during those Frisbee training workouts. Still had battery left Monday. I think he was at, he said 20% come Monday when he was going to put it on its charger. So basically from like Saturday morning all the way till Monday, not touching a charger, Apple Watch Ultra's got a big old battery. I think it's safe to say. Lots of uh, good practical reviews. Um, no one scaled Everest this past weekend, but uh, no, that's me. I'm doing that next week. Yeah, that's that. You're going to be the first. No, yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's definitely an interesting watch. I agree with uh, most of the reviews that said it's very aspirational. Right. Most people who are going to buy it are going to daydream about climbing a mountain or sure. diving into the Marianas Trench or something. But like some of the comparisons they were drawing, like pretty much every review mentioned, this isn't a Garmin killer, and I, I like that. That uh, because again, like most other Apple new entries, because this is a new entry, this isn't the Apple Watch Series 8 Ultra, right? This is a new right. product. Like most new Apple entries, they they draw comparison to whatever market they're entering. And, you know, Garmin and these other uh, super elite adventuring watches and stuff, $900,000 OLED titanium, like Apple's entered that market with the same kind of design standpoints and similar tech. But as the reviews pointed out, like you go to Garmin and you spend $900 on a watch, it's for hiking or this one is for diving whereas apples is a little bit more well-rounded for a little bit less than a lot of the competition and it's also an apple watch i think a lot of the reviews kind of glazed over that all in all this is still an apple watch top to bottom plus you get all these other new features and durability and battery life so i just think it's a really interesting product yeah and that was one of the things lexi said in her review if you look at the interface as a feature you know a lot of other explorer or adventure type watches whether it's from garmin or whatever they're not super user friendly and so the fact that it's still an Apple Watch, like you just said, is a benefit as far as navigation and ease of use. I also found it interesting, uh, John Gruber wrote a review and he had the Apple Watch Ultra. He was also comparing it to the Series 8. The face of the Apple Watch Ultra is very flat and there's even a lip of titanium around the display. He said it was about as tall as like an index card, you know, so it's a very, very shallow lip, but it's all made to protect the Apple Watch face, which is a very different look than the Apple Watch Series 8 or the rest of the series where the glass curves on the edges. And I asked him, you know, I was curious, faces like the contour Apple Watch face, which is almost made for that curve where the numbers kind of push all the way to the edge and because it's curved, you get a little bit of like refraction and the Apple Watch face kind of accentuates those curves and it, it looks nice, an aesthetically pleasing design. And Gruber was like, you know, it's two different designs. You know, some might have a preference. He felt faces like the contour face was kind of made for the curve, like it was really a little, not, he didn't say gimmicky, but it's almost like made to show off the curvature rather than actually be like a good watch face, which I can understand. I mean, the contour face is, is pretty bold in its design and you don't get a ton of complications and things like that. One of the other uh, criticisms of the Apple Watch Ultra, it only has one unique watch face, which is the Wayfinder watch face, and you can have a ton of complications. I think it's something like eight complications, plus you have things like compass and other features on that watch face. It would have been nice for Apple to have maybe more than one unique watch face for this watch, maybe geared towards other type of workouts, maybe one for diving and swimming, maybe another for rock climbing, I don't know. But the Wayfinder is kind of the only unique one you get. 
But of course, Apple could add different ones in the future. Yeah, I have a, I have a feeling Apple Watch Ultra is going to be similar to the iPad Pro trajectory just because, again, I, I mentioned this before, it seems like it's in a class of its own. So every two, three years, pass an update to it. It also makes it the price a little easier to swallow for people upgrading every time a new watch comes out. So if the new Ultra is only you know three years out, don't have to worry about it so much. And that larger battery means that we're, you're not going to see the effects of battery aging, like the chemistry aging right. soon. You'll, you'll go two and a half, three years easily without sacrificing much overall battery life, uh, battery health. I do think, though, like the Apple Watch Series 9, it would definitely benefit from the action button or some a, a different button. I hope it's not orange. Just make it, you know, I, I hate that. Uh, like, yeah. Or offer different colors and make it replaceable. I don't know. Make it something silly. Apple charge it charge $10 for a new button, but the design is fine. I just don't want a neutral titanium color. Like uh, give me a different color option. Maybe, you know, make it so where it looks a little bit more like a watch I can wear with anything and it'd be fine. Yeah. Uh, I know MKBHD mentions like uh, he could get away with wearing an Apple watch, like in a, in a tux or something. And that was pushing it, but it, it worked, but the Apple watch ultra, absolutely not. Definitely, you know, not nice enough for that. Right. And that, and that's the one thing I, I like the titanium. And so I had a titanium series seven and series six. And so the, the finish I like, but that orange button is definitely a bold color. And so I was thinking this, might be the first time I've not done this before, but actually alternate using two different Apple Watches, which your iPhone makes it easy to do. You can pair multiple Apple Watches with your iPhone and it will intelligently know which one is on your wrist and use that one for activity. And if you switch in the middle of the day, it'll keep tracking all that fitness stuff. And, you know, it's pretty seamless. My wife actually does it because she has an old Series 4 and she'll wear that overnight, just like this sleeping watch. And then she uses a mild Series 6, actually, the titanium during the day, because it's faster, bigger screen, always on display and all that. She does the dual watch lifestyle. It works really well for her. I know like CGP Grey has done that before too. It seems like a little much. I don't know if I want to like manage or deal with two separate Apple watches throughout the day. It's actually really straightforward. Apple makes it very easy to go through two watches. Right. I, I just, I don't know if like leaving one on the charger all day while I use the other one. That's the kind of stuff I can think about. It feels a little extravagant. And I mean, I'm the guy who has two iPads. I have an iPad pro and iPad mini <laughs> Right. for me. That makes sense. Cause the use case is different enough between the devices that it does feel like two different paradigms, but like the Apple watch ultra isn't adding anything to the experience unless I'm doing something that takes advantage of the ultraness of it. And right. like if, unless I pick up some kind of extreme sport, like I like hiking, you know, I live in a mountainous area, so I love going to the woods and hiking and walking, but funny enough, the Apple watch series eight is just fine for that. The GPS picks up in most areas. I'm not going to find anything without a cellular connection. I mean, even most of uh, northern Tennessee and, and Virginia go to the Shenandoah Mountains and I've, I've been walking there and there's still a GPS signal in most of those areas. But what, what did you think about, so like, I can't remember which review, but one of them pointed out, it's like, this was a watch targeted towards like epic extreme athletes. And they showed people hiking mountains and day camping on, uh, on the edge of a cliff and stuff like that. Uh, but they, they felt like this watch in practical use is more of a device for upcoming athletes who want to go from semi-pro to pro and just have that much more battery life, that much more sensors. Like, what do you think of that comparison? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm curious, you know, right now we have all the tech reviewers talking about it. And so I'm curious to see like, are there extreme adventurers and athletes that try it and find it useful? Like I kind of want the Austin man equivalent review of a yeah. photography feature. I want that for an explorer. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure it would be good for up and coming. I know for me, like, yes, a lot of the features I will not use and don't need, but battery life is a big deal. I mean, I wear mine when I sleep and it's fine charging it in the morning when I get ready. And then at night before I go to bed, right as I'm watching something and my battery has been fine. But sometimes if I forget to do that, or maybe I'm traveling, that extra battery life is useful, I would think. And the action button, I'm also excited to try the, I do swim. So I have a pool and I swim there. And I'll do a swimming workout on my Series 7. Sometimes if I jump in the pool and then try to do the workout, it can be a little cumbersome. It's a little far out of Wi-Fi range. 
And I kind of have to wait for the Apple Watch to respond to my touch because if it gets a little wet, you know, that capacitive screen can be a little wonky. And then I can try and use Siri if it's on the internet. But anyway, I'm going to program that action button to just start a swimming workout. And that would be convenient at the very least. I think that would be useful. I'm also going to see how it does when it has water on the screen. I've noticed in watchOS 9, in order to unlock the screen after it senses it's been underwater, you actually have to hold the crown button rather than turn it. In watchOS 8 and earlier, if it got wet and the screen locked because of the water, you would turn the crown until it made the sound and ejected the water with the speaker and then you could use it. But now you have to hold the crown and I find it takes a lot longer in the holding way than having to just roll the crown. So I'm just curious how the Apple Watch Ultra does in all those situations. And I would, I'm hoping there's some extreme adventurers that try it out too. I'd like to hear what they think. Yeah. I mean, this is a big watch. Everyone mentioned it. Like if you have impossibly small wrists or, you know, feminine wrists, I have pretty tiny wrists. I would probably still wear the Ultra and mostly get away with it, but I'm right there borderline on like a 49 millimeter case would look almost comical to the point where I might as well be like Leela and uh, Futurama and wear an entire phone strapped to my arm like a seven inch screen uh, i'm waiting for that apple uh bring it on let's go but um there it is no the the ultra size like guys i know it's tempting everyone out there like ooh, double the battery life i don't know i've personally not had an issue with apple watch battery life since even like the series five like just charge it once a day for like half an hour and you'll that's it like yeah find a place in your routine where you're brushing your teeth and getting ready for bed or you're going to take a shower slap it on that charger especially now with fast charging i just yeah like again unless you're at a base camp in the middle of nowhere and, and need that watch to last 36 hours you really don't need that extra battery life and the size really does make a difference it's bigger and it's heavier and i mean i'm wearing the stainless steel series 8 right now 45 millimeter and it's it's weighty yeah. i know the titanium makes it a lighter watch but because of that size it's still heavier than the watch i'm wearing right now so yeah. think about that that fast charging from series 7 newer so that would be series 7 series 8 and the apple watch ultra makes a big difference if you do not have a charger that supports fast charging for apple watch i encourage you to try it out you need the usb-c to apple watch charger and plug into like a higher wattage port or some of the MagSafe chargers like the new Belkin 1 3-in-1 yeah. Boost Charge Pro that does fast charging on Apple Watch. You get it in the box too. So you get at least right. one cable in the box to try it out. If, and if you're sold on that, go get a couple more. But exactly. Yeah. The battery, I just, I see a lot of people complain about it. And I mean, I guess maybe it's just because I have chargers and I'm one of those people who diligently charge my devices every day. But I, knowing my nieces and nephews, my sister, a lot of those people will forget to charge. And like, I guess for them, having a longer battery life makes sense because it's necessary because they're not as diligent about charging. It's not really a part of their routine. All right, so before we talk to the devices we actually have in hand, I want to talk about iPhone 14 Pro and crash detection and all that. But AirPods Pro 2, the initial reviews also came out. Those are shipping Friday as well. I got a pair of AirPods Pro 2 coming. A lot of the reviews said kind of what you would expect. They do sound really good. The noise cancellation is very good. The design is the same. And so there could be some consternation about, you know, is it, but I don't know what you would change about it anyways. I mean, the stems now have the capacitive touch so you can swipe up and down for volume adjustments. I think the case has great improvements like the U1 find my precision finding features with that and the little lanyard loop, which yeah. <laughs> lanyards like sold out in Apple's app store very quickly, the Belkin lanyard. So obviously that's popular, but yeah, they're going to sound good. Apple did something cool here because yeah, the, the design didn't change but they gave us something because the design didn't change. If we lost the stems, we wouldn't have the uh, volume control. So honestly, I would argue at that point, the utility is better than losing the stems. Again, like I, I wonder what kind of device they would be without them. Um, if they're these little bean shaped things that you stick in and out of your ear, I feel like, you know, that's accessibility issues, um, harder to get in and out, easier to drop. I, I, I wonder if Apple had one of these bean shaped AirPods and prototyping. and was just like, sorry, it's, it's just not working out. I mean, I don't know what the future of AirPods looks like. I wouldn't expect anything spectacular to change about the design anytime soon. And everyone complained about it. And I'm going to be, um, writing the review about the AirPods, uh, pro, um, myself for the Apple insider. So I'll be commenting on it too. Cause Nice. I think there's some things that could have changed design wise, but again, they struck a good balance between keeping the price the same, bringing new features, and I guess not changing the design was part of that. But um, every single review brought up the Bose Quiet Comfort 2 uh, 
uh, just saying that the ANC on those are better. And I, it's interesting because those are a $300 pair of headphones. They're a little bit more expensive. They're outside of Apple's ecosystem. And they didn't really comment on the audio quality of those headphones, just that the ANC was better. So sure, if you are a traveler, only cares about ANC, the Bose Quiet Comfort 2s might be, you know, a good buy. But again, I guess that goes back to the Garmin comparison to the Apple Watch Ultra. There's such a specific shave down use case that, you know, once you look at the Apple product, they're a completely different device. Like the AirPods Pro 2 also have like, yeah, the ANC isn't as good as the Quiet Comforts, but they also have the adaptive transparency, which isn't matched by anybody uh, from what I've heard from the reviews and the uh, like the Sony adaptive transparency modes that they've been working on are really good. But like Apple's is competitive with that, too, on top of improved audio quality, on top of the Apple ecosystem integration. So for $250. Yeah, I am, too. And I think ecosystem is such a big deal. I do have other noise canceling earbuds and they sound really good. You can get some features that you don't get with AirPods Pro, like really fine tuning the EQ settings for earbuds. Maybe you get some slightly different features in whatever proprietary app they're using, like the Bose app. But if you're in the Apple ecosystem, you have your iPhone Mac and iPad, the automatic switching for AirPods, the pairing, the Find My, like that ecosystem is a lot of features and whether or not you could really tell the noise cancellation is better or that much better, I think that is a fine trade-off, especially better transparency mode on the AirPods Pro 2, capacitive controls, like all that kind of stuff. I, yeah, I can't I can't wait to see, you know, have them in hand, see what they sound like, see what they, yeah. how the adaptive transparency works. Um, just again, just excited for this product. My AirPods Pro are dying and uh, I definitely need, Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting that static issue. A lot of people complained about like the making a fuzzy noise in the earbuds, like yeah. popping every time I yeah. speak. So like it's trying to compensate, but it's just blowing fuzzy noise into my ear. I don't know. Yeah. Definitely ready to re replace these. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is brought to you by my incredible friends at Rogue Amoeba who makes audio hijack, loopback, applications that I am literally using right now to record this show. My goodness, it has been 20 years and Rogue Amoeba is celebrating their 20th anniversary, two full decades making amazing audio apps for the Mac. Listen, if you're a podcaster, musician, or just someone who likes to listen to audio on their Mac, I cannot say enough good things about their incredible applications for the Mac. You do anything with audio on your Mac, you need the apps from Rogue Amoeba. With Audio Hijack that I'm using every week to record this show, you can record any audio from apps, from web browsers, from physical inputs, and you can do it all in a single session. You can even schedule recordings to start and stop at certain times. I use that in Audio Hijack. Their app Loopback gives you extremely powerful audio routing without needing cables or mixers. And SoundSource is the sound control that should be built into macOS. Rogue Amoeba doesn't usually run sales or discounts, and that's because they charge fair prices for their incredible apps. But this is a special occasion. And in celebration of their 20th anniversary, for a limited time, you can get 20% off any purchase from Rogue Amoeba. You don't need any coupon codes or special URLs. Just visit macaudio.com, M-A-C-audio.com, before the end of September to save 20% on anything they make. Download the free trials, then buy online to receive the discounted price. I'm telling you, listener, if you ever want to do anything with audio on your Mac, Audio Hijack, I've been using it for years. It is one of my necessities to have on any Mac, and I absolutely love everything they make. Congratulations to Rogue Amoeba on 20 great years. You can visit them at macaudio.com. Our thanks to Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring this episode. And another thing that I can't live without, sleep. And that sleep is brought to you by Helix Sleep. I have tried several internet mattresses in my life, and I can tell you Helix Sleep makes the best. You wake up refreshed and renewed. It's incredible. They make premium mattresses tailored to your specific and unique sleep preferences. The Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, mattresses for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Here's what you do. You go to helixsleep.com slash Apple Insider, and you take a quick two-minute quiz. They ask you which way do you prefer to sleep, back, side. Do you like firm, medium, or soft mattresses? I actually like a little medium. I sleep on my side. They matched me with a Helix Plus mattress. I've had it for over two years now. It is incredible. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Helix mattress, and if you decide it's not the best fit, 
you're welcome to return for a full refund, but you're not gonna do that because I know you're going to absolutely love their mattress. Enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating at night. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. And then I mentioned you get a 100 night risk-free trial. They'll even pick it up for you and you'll get a full refund if you don't love it. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash appleinsider. That's up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash appleinsider. That link is in the show notes as well. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Our thanks to Helix Sleep for sponsoring this episode. All right, so iPhone 14 Pro, Pro Max, you have the Pro Max, so it's been a week now, we've had these, got it on launch day, got the UPS guy, saw him through my window, ran to the front door and opened it so he would see me standing there. And so I got it on launch day, but lots of thoughts on it. You know, we talked about some of the reviews last episode that were on there, but as far as my personal thoughts, Wes did the full review on Apple Insider. Let's go feature by feature. The first one I'd like to talk about is the always on display is not divisive, but this has been one of the key points in a lot of the reviews where some people are struggle getting used to it and others, you know, there's some cool features to it. So now that I've lived with it for a week, I will say I spent a few days with it on and then I turned it off to see how I felt about that. And then I re-enabled it. And I found that there are some use cases, the always on is incredibly useful. I've used directions a couple times. And when you have live turn-by-turn directions running and you lock your iPhone, then the turn and the distance to the next turn and what street is displayed on the screen persistently, but the map and everything goes away. So it's not taking up as much battery life, but you still get that exact direction and exact turn. So situations like that, I've really liked the always on display. But for me, and I, John Gruber mentioned this as well, Nilay Patel, having no always on display for years up until this iPhone, when I look down at my phone sitting on a table, if the screen is on, I kind of automatically feel like a notification just came in because up until this point, that has been the activity. Like if, if the screen's on and I had not been recently using the phone, it means I have a notification. And so kind of for the past week, I've been feeling that in that reaction to say screens on, Oh, either I forgot to sleep. Maybe I set the screen to never lock or the five minutes cause I was filming and something's wrong. And it's taken a few days to shift my mindset to it. And I, I am liking it. I like some of the widgets on the always on like my next calendar event. I will say, Lewis, who sent me an email, listener, and others, the focus mode options. I'm actually in a spot now, now that we have custom lock screens in iOS 16, I am always in a focus mode, and I think you have this behavior as well. So I have a work focus mode that enacts during the day. I have an evening focus mode it switches into before bed. And then I have the sleep focus mode. So at any time of day, I am in a focus mode. And even on the weekend, I have a weekend focus mode. One of the customization toggles for a focus mode is to dim the lock screen. And so if you have that toggle on and you have an iPhone 14 Pro with an always on display, when that focus mode is active, it will actually make the screen go black, but it will keep the date, the time, and whatever widgets you have on your lock screen still visible and everything's black and white. And so I have found that keeping that toggle on, dim the lock screen, but keep the always on display on has been a good balance because when I see no wallpaper, that signals to me that it is in locked mode and I didn't get a notification. And I think it's more akin to a lot of the Android implementations because they've had always on displays for a long time. And most of them have that look, a black and white lock screen, the wallpaper is not visible, and you see some small widgets. And so that has been my compromise up until now. I keep the lock screen dimmed in the focus modes. And because I'm always in a focus mode, my always on display, you don't see the wallpaper, you just see black and white icons. And that's helped my adjustment. How's been your experience with the always on display? Well, I think like anything Apple does, that's it, new and different. People react emotionally, I guess, charged because it is different. Apple's approach is just completely different from what anyone else is doing. And there's no customization. This is a first iteration. Android's been doing this. I think John Gruber remarked on this on his podcast, like seven years mm -hmm. and Apple's 
out the gate here with a single toggle and settings. Wait for it, guys. I, I think we're going to see more of, you know, stuff later. By the way, sleep mode automatically turns off the display. I've seen a lot of people complaining about this on Twitter because the reviews kind of missed it. But if you have sleep mode turned on by default, it turns off the display. So you don't have to worry about your phone sitting on your nightstand with a bright clock on it. It, it hasn't affected me. First, it was a little odd having the display just be on, but I got used to it fairly quickly. I set up my iPhone as new. So I came over with the focus modes still intact, um, those synced, but I mm. lost all of my customization, my lock screens, my home screens, everything, and started over because I, I just like to do that. It lets me kind of examine my workflows and see if I'm doing the right thing. Mm. Guys, go in and just make a bunch of lock screens. Just make several of them, tie them to different focus modes. Use the photo shuffle. It's actually really cool to just have a dozen photos switch every hour uh, and always have a new fresh screen and it's always on your on your phone. Like take full advantage of the feature. Um, I feel like hiding from it, kind of like putting a the, the black bar on the MacBook to hide the notch kind of thing. I feel like it's the same kind of behavior <laughs> uh, that we're seeing here yeah. and it it's it's fine. And I, I also think the, the photo shuffle feature on a lock screen, you can choose specific people and your iPhone will pull photos of those particular faces in that photo shuffle. And so my weekend focus mode changes to a lock screen that has the photo shuffle enabled and it shows pictures of my family and it pulls just the faces of my family. And it's a really nice way to appreciate old photos because I, don't, I mean, I don't know about our listeners. I'd be curious to hear what you guys do, but I typically don't like scroll back to my old photos very often. I did it the other day because I was looking for something specific and I was scrolling through photos from like 10 years ago. And it was a really fun experience. I was showing my kids like, hey, here was me in college and all this kind of stuff. And it's just not something I routinely do. But having that photo shuffle feature, putting a featured photo right there on the lock screen that changes, you can have it change once an hour, once a day. And so I actually have my weekend one changing once an hour pulling from photos of my family and those particular faces. And it's really nice. I, I like it. Yeah. And I mean, get, get creative. There's so many widgets flowing in here. Um, sometimes just don't have a widget, you know, take advantage of those depth effects, just really get into it. But yeah, I've just, I've just noticed that the always on I I've, really um embraced it and enjoyed it in the review you can see i have a, an apple insider um wallpaper for my work focus that was made by was basic apple guy and uh just because mm -hmm. i showed him i was like I, I was experimenting with one of his um wallpapers on lock screen and i was like i wonder if i could do this with the apple insider logo and he sent me a mock-up so I'm, i've been using that as my wallpaper and it looks great and uh, when it dims it t turns the art gray basically but it almost looks like the screen hasn't changed or it's basically at its lowest brightness setting with the same wallpaper. And I kind of like that biggest aspects of this. Like I, I, I went biking last weekend to find photos to take for the comparison. And I have a mount on the handlebars for my iPhone and the always on display was awesome. It just, you know, I could look down at any time, see the time and see if I have a, a notification coming in. If I had my maps active, I could see the the next turn direction mm -hmm. right there in front of me. Now, if you're in driving mode, always on display goes off, by the way. If you're using the right. CarPlay, um, Apple expects you to be looking at that screen, not your phone screen. So the, the CarPlay turns off. But um, if you're just using your phone on a dash uh, without CarPlay or if you're using it like on your bike handlebars, it really changes the game. It's just this little um, hub of information uh, that never goes away. And that's really nice. That is nice. All right, quickly, the dynamic islands, the other feature, you know, we still have to wait till third-party apps really get the APIs and live activities to see what the dynamic island will really do kind of day-to-day. -day. It's been fun to play around with. I noticed that when you play podcasts, at least in the Apple Podcast app, the little audio waveform that's up there in the dynamic island will actually color match to the artwork of the podcast you're listening to. So that's really nice little detail feature there. You can look at that as you're playing different music and podcasts. Overall, it's nice to have some things up there like timers. You can have the timer up there. Some people kind of wish that you'd be able to hide it or choose not to show timers there. Maybe it's a longer timer, like a two hour one, and you would prefer not to have that persistently seen in the dynamic island. Totally get that. Maybe that could be features that come in the future, like don't include these in dynamic island, but do include these other things. But overall, it's just been kind of a fun little winsome feature for the iPhone 14 Pro. And also when you swipe up on an app to go home, how you swipe the app up will actually dictate the movement of the window into the dynamic island. <laughs> so if you're in an app and then you swipe kind of straight down up the, oh wait, no, no, no. 
Wait, wait, which, which one? It's not when you go home. It's when you're running an app like Apple Music and it's actively playing and you're right, throwing right, the right. music into the dynamic island. It's a yes. active GUI element. This isn't like a static a- animation. It's responding to the physics of your throw like a like a, yes. a video game um, graphic. So it's a graphically accelerated animation. It's really cool. Yeah. And so if you like twist it to the left or to the right as you're swiping up to go home from music as it's playing... You'll kind of see the window, like follow that trajectory that you swiped up. Or if you try to swipe it directly straight, it'll follow that physics as well. So nice little touches there. It has inertia too. So if the bubble, like uh, on the dynamic island, if you throw it hard enough, it'll expand outwards the opposite direction, like a a, a net catching a soccer ball kind of thing. But like if it touches any of the elements in the status bar, it moves them out of the way or and they move out of the way faster based on, so you're basically smacking the clock with the dynamic Island and it's reacting with like inertia to it and then slowly falling back into place. You have to see these in slow motion, but it's, it's really clever. I agree with some of the reviews that are saying it's more static than dynamic. You know, it's just kind of sitting up there, but at the same time I'm treating it more like a multitasking feature. I wish I could change the tap action. So if I tap it, it it expands Mm. into the controls rather than opening the app. I've actually accidentally opened Apple Music so many times trying to scroll to the top of an app like in Safari. If you tap the top of the screen, it scrolls up. Apple's moved that to above the dynamic island. So you have to tap the space between the top of the phone and the dynamic island to scroll to the top of Safari now. And it's kind of easy to miss. I feel like I'm just going to have to train that muscle memory. But there's a lot of little things here. It is kind of aggressive and how it, it gets in the way so if you do accidentally tap that you're moving to a whole different app whereas if it just popped down the player controls i feel like i could just tap in the app again and dismiss it so apple's judgment behind the open the app when you tap it thing it makes sense from their point of view but it feels more disruptive overall so i i hope they give us at least mm-hmm. a toggle in settings to switch that behavior between tap and hold and tap that would be nice also on eSIM, the iphone 14 and 14 pro at least models here in the u.s do not have the sim card tray the transition to eSIM has been troublesome for some people i know i've just seen on twitter people saying like they've gone days without a phone number and things like that i went to put my iphone 13 pro in the trade-in box i do the apple iphone upgrade program send my old iphone back and get the new one and you're supposed to pop out the sim card from your previous iPhone before you send it back to Apple. And so I went to pop out the SIM card on my 13 Pro and nothing was there. (laughs) There was no SIM card in my iPhone 13 Pro. And apparently, at least on AT&T, that's the carrier I use here in the States, I guess it transitioned to eSIM with the iPhone 13 Pro. And then when I activated my iPhone 14 Pro, I mean, it was a pretty seamless experience of transitioning. The eSIM moved over. I didn't have any issues. And as soon as I activated the 14 Pro, it was working and it's worked ever since. But uh, yeah, apparently I was already on eSIM and I had no idea. Yeah, I uh, cheated and moved uh, from a physical SIM to the eSIM on my iPhone 13 before the 14 got here. And yeah, during the setup process, it just was two uh, was two clicks and it was done. I It took less than a yeah. couple minutes and I had... A ser- had service on my iPhone. It's the busiest day of the year for carriers and it's just like mm-hmm. a hassle, but now it's just a two-click setup. I, I definitely uh, love eSIM much more for that um, yeah. being an easy process. Yeah, it was nice. I also thought it was funny in your review, you, you gave the iPhone 14 Pro Max a total of four and a half stars. And I would like your thoughts on the camera because that's one thing I haven't gotten a lot of chance to test or try out. But I like how you said it's happy 10th anniversary to the lightning port because every year we get rumors that it's going to go USB-C and it is still not. And I don't know when, if ever, but anyway, lightning port 10th anniversary and also the cameras. Tell me what you think, Wes. I had a few complaints just because I felt like we're, we're an Apple specific website. You know, a lot of people are going to come here and think, oh, they're just going to worship this thing. It's not, you know, perfect. No, nothing's ever perfect. So I did want to point out a few things. And yeah, the design maybe is getting a little stale. This is, we're going to have this will be the third year of this this particular design aspect. And the dynamic island's nice, but it doesn't do enough to change the phone um, physically. Like uh, someone has to look at the screen in order to know you have the 14. I feel like next year that might be a little different. We'll get some kind of upgrade externally. Lightning port being back, that's silly. USB 2.0 speeds, that's awful, um, especially when you're working with ProRAW or ProRes. If you want to get you know 500 photos you've just taken in ProRAW off of your phone to edit on your computer, 
all of your options are terrible. Getting it from the phone is a multi-minute, if not multi-hour process in some cases. You just got to put it on at 8 p.m. and wake up the next morning and hope it didn't error out halfway through. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, so Lightning needs to go. Only a couple other little complaints. I, I, I mentioned the eSIM thing. Like, it's great for us um, Americans who are more or less landlocked. Sorry, Hawaii. Like, we're not really hitting other countries and trading SIMs out too often. But over in Europe or Africa, like, sorry, uh, if you don't have a SIM tray... Sometimes you're just out of luck. I saw someone on Twitter um, saying that they bought a phone in the U.S. and they were traveling to an African country next week and none of the carriers offer eSIM, just no- nothing. So what are they going to do when they yeah. get there? Buy, I guess buy a burner phone for cellular service. Mm. We went to Dollywood Theme Park in southern Tennessee. I used it all day, pro raw photos, uh, action mode film, like video, 4K video, photos on and on all day between it and the 13 Pro Max. And it was at exactly 50% when we left at 5 p.m. Mm. The Pro Max, the 13 Pro Max that I was testing with didn't have a cellular connection and I took like 15 comparison photos with it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like so and it was in my pocket most of the day. It was at sixty five percent. So just think about like the difference and how much is mm. being done on one phone versus the other. And that it just it killed it. It's definitely a, a amazing battery life. This episode is brought to you by Magic Lasso Adblock. Do you want a better browsing experience in Safari on your iPhone, your iPad, and your Mac? Then download Magic Lasso Adblock. It's an ad blocker designed for you. It's easy to set up, blocks YouTube ads, and even doubles the speed at which Safari loads. Magic Lasso is an efficient, high-performance, and free ad blocker. It's got over 4,000 five-star reviews. It's simply the best ad blocker for your devices. I've used Magic Lasso Adblock for years, really long before they sponsored this episode, and it's my favorite ad blocker. It blocks all intrusive ads, trackers, annoyances, letting you experience a faster, cleaner, and more secure web browsing experience. And unlike some other ad blockers, Magic Lasso respects your privacy. This is important. It doesn't accept payment from advertisers. That's a big deal. You can trust that Magic Lasso is not selling your data to advertisers. So stop being followed by ads around the web, block all ad trackers, ensuring your browsing history is not harvested by ad networks. And the app now also blocks over 10 types of YouTube ads, including video ads, banner ads, search ads, and suggested product ads. So join over 200,000 users and download Magic Lasso Adblock for free from the App Store. And as a special offer for Apple Insider listeners, you can go to magiclasso.co slash Apple Insider and receive one month free access to all the app's pro features, and you can see how good it is to use. That's magiclasso.co slash Apple Insider to receive one month free pro access. And that link is in the show notes as well. Our thanks to Magic Lasso Adblock for their support of the Apple Insider podcast. What you wanted to know, the cameras are amazing. It was tough though, doing like, especially like photo comparison shots, because as I mentioned in the review, most cameras, uh, phone cameras in general are programmed in full auto, right? You, the only way to get a manual mode on iPhone is yeah. to download something like Halide. So it's full auto. So when you point the camera at a subject, it automatically does white balance, exposure, uh, color compensation, distortion compensation, right. all of that's happening. And that that's where that like 11 trillion like operation per per shutter close uh, apple comes up with that's all of that and it's going through the algorithmic f- like pipeline and if it's dark enough like if you're in a dim space it goes through the photonic engine which is added onto apple's pipeline to make it even better and out pops your photo so every phone mm-hmm. does this photographic process so when you point a 13 pro max and a 14 pro max at a brightly lit subject in broad daylight they're pretty much going to take the same photo because they're designed to Mm. apple's photographic pipeline didn't really change outside of the photonic engine so i saw a lot of reviews saying man i just you know took a photo of this not moving statue in broad daylight and i can't tell the difference between the 13 pro and the 14 pro and i'm just over here like hitting my head on the desk because photographically speaking they shouldn't be different the 48 megapixel sensor is interesting right and uh, you can tell a difference once you and this is where the like you know the crop and zoom comes in that detail that this camera is capturing is absolutely there even in broad daylight even with the different compensation of the algorithms and stuff you're getting much more detail apple also obviously is doing something different with this image signal processor i was dumb and accidentally ran iOS 16.1, I probably should have tested this on 16.0, whatever. Apple seems to be changing their photographic process constantly on these first couple of releases since the iPhone 14, because again, I I noticed that the photos 
on the 14 Pro Max, we're coming out a little less saturated mm. with a little bit more intense shadowing and the exposure compensation was a little bit different. So just little little differences in those when you know what to look for uh, versus the 13 Pro, which is running on a different ISP in the A15 Bionic, right? Sometimes I was taking a photo and looking and like, why does this look worse on the 14 Pro? And it's because our eyes are stupid. Our brains are stupid. That's why when you go to a Best Buy and you walk into the TV section and you're like, wow. Oh, the saturation's on the Yeah, they're like, why is this such an amazing picture? I can never see that on my TV at home. It's because, yeah, they have the saturation at 1,000% with the brightness turned up to like supernova. Yeah. And, your eye, and your brain's just like being wowed. And I started to notice a pattern with the iPhone 13 Pro Max. The photos weren't bad, but it was compensating for its lesser image signal processor and it's lesser compared to the 14 pro max because again these are both amazing cameras it was compensating yeah. more with saturation and more with overexposing a little bit and then bringing and then bringing out the shadows in post-process zooming in on the 14 pro max and you can see this in the review details in the bricks on uh, that theater building was you could see like the little lines and shadows there where the iphone 13 kind of just eliminated those entirely and it's just like here's a, a solid brick <laughs> yeah. again it's hard to explain over a podcast go look at the review go look at the photos for yourself yep. we have a little comparison slider zoom in as much as you can it's noticeable and camera the main camera especially is just so much better and then you turn on pro raw yeah night and day might as well be a different completely different camera and uh, i didn't test that as much because again i wanted to do a direct comparison 12 megapixels across to the 13 and i'm going to be playing around with pro raw but from what i've taken wow just wild and then not even to mention the improvements to the other cameras absolutely and the one thing i did notice is if you tap on the pro raw in the camera app so you're shooting a 48 megapixel photo with the iphone 14 pro you do have to be mindful of your lighting situation because typically if you were just shooting in the stock no pro raw mode is going to bend those pixels together for better light gathering and it's going to give you probably a brighter photo or at least a less grainy photo because it's using four pixels in place of one whereas when you do pro raw you're going to be using every one of those 48 megapixels and it's not going to be gathering as much light and so that's some of the things to be mindful of there was actually um i think it was jonah on twitter he was showing me like comparisons between the 13 pro and 14 pro taking a picture of a lamp kind of like across the room and the 14 pro was seemingly less detailed or less sharp than the 13 pro in the like 48 megapixel mode but i think that is partly due to less light gathering if it's having to work harder to compensate for low light, but it can't bend those pixels together because you have ProRAW turned on or you're using Halide, then the low light performance might be slightly worse in the 48 megapixel mode on the 14 Pro than it would be with a 13 Pro just stock camera taking it with the 12 megapixel sensor. Well, this is complicated and we could spend an entire podcast discussing it. People are just taking a raw photo and then posting it to Twitter next to a processed photo from an iPhone 13. I mean, like what happened here? I'll tell you what happened. You took right. a raw photo. The whole point pro raw and raw is you're going to take that because you want every ounce of detail and photographic information. That's why these files are 50, 60 megabytes, uh, because it's bundled with a package of information based on your focal length and the uh, exposure color compensation and all of that is inside the file. So when an image editor sees the raw file, it opens that additional package. So when you adjust the saturation slider, the exposure slider, you're getting much more fine control over what you would in a JPEG. Apple and whoever, even off a Sony camera shooting raw, they expect you to take that photo and edit it because editing it is the point. Yeah. You're going to get so much more out of it you're going to see more noise in a raw photo because they didn't run the denoise process because they want you to right. do it so <laughs> right, yes right. and i will argue probably don't turn on pro raw in a dim room if you want the absolutely best shot that you're going to post to instagram the very next minute um but right it, look at the halide gosh uh sebastian dewith look at that guy oh, he yeah. took a photo on a street corner late evening pro raw 
with the exposure turned down. I think he must have taken it through Halide and then edited it. It was pitch black. You couldn't see anything in that photo. It was awful. But, you know, he edited it, which is what you're supposed to do. And it is an outstanding photo. Even Greg Joswiak like tweeted it and said, yeah, (laughs) this is amazing. You know, and that came out of the iPhone 14 Pro because of Pro Raw. So don't go on Twitter and see like this grainy, desaturated photo and think, wow, why did that come out of that phone? It's because they didn't edit it. I promise you. Like, Like that picture of a duck I posted um, in the review, I didn't edit that for a reason because I didn't want to have my bias come through in the photo because I tend to have my own stylistic editing where I might uh, denoise it more than people might like or I might saturate it more than they like. So I didn't want them to see that photo and think this didn't come from an iPhone. It's still just the straight shot because the point of that image example was to show the detail where I zoomed in on the feathers. But again, trust that the 48 megapixels do make a difference. And this is a very different sensor than say Samsung's 108 megapixel sensor that cannot take a 108 megapixel photo to save its life. So yeah. I will put a link in the show notes to Sebastian DeWitt that the uh, side-by-side shot of like the pro raw right of the camera and the edited, and it'll also be the chapter art if you haven't seen it yet, and you can see the difference and what the 48 megapixel sensor is capable of. I did want to point out one more. The other cameras were improved, um, but Apple glossed over this. The selfie camera is a different camera. The ultra wide camera is different. They're physically different cameras and different sensors. I was most surprised by the change. And this, this was the photonic engine at work um, because Apple promised two X low light. And in the review, one of my favorite photos uh, examples I took was my cat sitting by a window and she was sitting next to a closed curtain window, sunlight coming in through the curtain. But on my side where I took the photo, it was dim. So the photonic photonic engine was going to kick in. I took a 3x telephoto shot of the cat on the 14 pro max you could see you know fine detail her hair her color came through just fine this is going to be the most dramatic difference uh in the in the review slide over on that iphone 13 pro max image and it it's a potato camera it might as well be a different cat like there's she it, she doesn't have fur anymore she's made of plastic like it just lost all that fine detail because of the difference in that engine and that 2x low light capability really came through in that photo i just i just really enjoyed that example that's cool so link in the show notes to wes's review check out all the photo comparisons we got the sliders so you can kind of see 13 pro versus 14 pro really cool run into a lightning round i wanted to cover a bunch of little things quickly as we would expect a youtuber strapped an iPhone 14 Pro and crashed a car <laughs> with the phone taped to the back of a headrest. Oh my gosh. And it was a remote controlled car. No one was in the car. So there was no one in danger. Crashed a car kind of into another junked car in the middle of nowhere, it seemed like. But crash detection did work. There was a 10 second delay from impact to the iPhone auto dialing the emergency SOS. And even in that situation, you do have the 10 seconds to stop the SOS call so it will not call emergency services. And the YouTuber did that as well. Like no emergency services were called, but they did multiple tests. Each time crash detection was triggered. There was that delay each time, about 10 seconds, but it would have called 911. It would have called emergency services automatically and it detected the crash. And it wasn't even a very fast crash. I don't know if it was maybe like five miles an hour. Like it wasn't fast, but it still detected it with the airbags coming out and the sudden stop, high G-force accelerometer, all of that. Crash detection worked. Okay, but was it crash detection or fall detection? Because both of those are active. It said crash detection on the okay, phone. Okay, okay, just making sure. Like it actually, yeah, it, it actually said like you're, you know, iPhone has detected you've been in a crash, calling emergency services. So because like the watch has crash detection as well, but it will also detect a fall. So if you crash your bike, that's nowhere near enough to trigger crash detection, but it will still trigger fall detection. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Some quick thoughts on iOS 16. Talking about the battery percentage, I know we've talked about it before, but Dave Gingrich sent me an email. Says his wife is a nurse and really appreciates the exact percentage on the iPhone, especially throughout the day. So good call on the iPhone percentage in 16.1. Apple is actually tweaking that battery percentage icon where right now in 16.0, the battery icon stays completely full until you get to like 20%. It'll just show the number changing. And then at 20%, you see the battery icon, you know, go down. Well, in 16.1, the battery icon will slowly deplete, slowly lose its color filling, basically in addition to the number percentage. So the icon will follow the number. That's been a little like divisive on Twitter. Some people like it. Some people don't like the design, but at least it'll kind of be consistent with the number. And also find my iPhone actually has a new sound. This was Andrew Williams pointed it out on Twitter. 
And I'll do it right here so you can hear it. If you've not done from like an Apple Watch play of sound on my iPhones, this way you can find it in the house. This is what it sounds like now. That's the new sound for the uh, find my iPhone in the house. And then finally, iOS 16, one of the features I was really excited about was the remind me feature in mail, which I assumed would be like the snooze feature you see in a lot of other email applications where you can say, remind me in an hour, remind me tomorrow. You can even set a specific date and the mail app would remind you about it, but it would be removed from your inbox. That key behavior is actually missing in the iOS 16 remind me feature. If you choose remind me about this email, it does not disappear from your inbox. It stays there. It does get put in a separate inbox, like in your list of boxes. There'll be like a remind me box there. And when it does remind you wherever you've set the time, that email will jump to the top and be marked like kind of specially. But I was really hoping for the behavior like other snooze behaviors, like in Gmail and even Outlook, Office 365, where the email will disappear from sight until the time comes when you have set it to unsnooze. So I'm hoping Apple can add a toggle. I looked in the mail settings. There is no toggle to, you know, hide, remind me messages or emails. So I'm hoping for that behavior soon. I'm just not using email enough to need this feature, but maybe in the future <laughs> when I'm, I'm cooler and more popular, I'll, I'll need it. And also watchOS 9, listener Paul Collard on Twitter tried the new watchOS 9 low power mode on his Series 7, I believe, or Series 6. And he actually found he was getting a lot of battery life. Like he was able to go, I think, 36 hours or more with that low power mode on Apple Watch. And this new low power mode, this is different than the like critical battery mode that Apple Watch will go in previously and it would just show like the green screen and numbers. Power reserve. Right, that would be, that is power reserve. Low power mode on Apple Watch, if you have an Apple Watch with an always on display, it will turn that off. It turns off heart rate notifications for irregular rhythm, high heart rate, turns off background heart rate measurements, background blood oxygen measurements, and a start workout reminder. And so if you want a little more battery life out of your Apple Watch and those heart rate or blood oxygen measurements are not super important to you to have kind of ongoing or the always on display, low power mode will disable those features as soon as you enable low power mode on the Apple Watch, it seems like you can get a significant battery bump, or at least it'll last a lot longer with that low power mode on. And, and what's interesting is this is the feature in the keynote where it's for triathlon runners too, who want the battery to last longer and still get workout measurements. So it won't do the background heart rate detection, but if you manually start a workout, it will begin tracking your heart rate and the other metrics used for workout detection, but it's also still removing those other features to preserve battery life and prioritize the workout. So pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. And Paul said after 24 hours of use on low power mode, he was at 57% battery. So he might, might even be able to stretch it to 48 hours. So cool feature. So last two quick things. I want to talk about the Apple podcast app, but there was one piece of news that two unannounced iPads may have been revealed by Logitech. And this was the Logitech website mentioned uh, some iPad models that don't exist yet, like the iPad Pro 12.9 inch sixth generation and iPad Pro 11 inch fourth generation. It was listed under the Logitech, I don't know if it's the crayon or the Logitech pencil or the, yeah, the crayon, the crayon digital pencil. <laughs> it was on that website. And so maybe Logitech knows something we don't. We have heard lots of rumors that there would be another event come October. iPadOS 16.1 seems to be waiting for yeah. the release of new hardware, which could be the regular iPad 10th generation, and that's it. But uh, I'm holding out for iPad Pro. I'm 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 not feeling I'm not feeling this leak. I mean, we've had so many accidental oops. We mm -hmm. listed something that shouldn't be. Like Target has done this multiple times. Look back at our history; it's almost never correct. And the ones that are, it's like the next day that they're coming out and we're like a month or more out from these um sometimes you know conspiracy theory hats guys sometimes i think websites like to do this to uh bring attention to a new product that they're um, about to debut or, or they're mm. making and they get in the apple uh, newspapers a little bit better but the apple newspapers where do you get those Apple newspapers, uh, pick them up at your local retailer. Here is your newspaper. The Apple news websites, sorry, went back to 1940 yes, yeah. for a moment. And <laughs> yeah, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel again. I, I'm just going to keep banging this drum. Doesn't feel like we're getting iPad pros this soon, but we'll see. We'll see. Mm -hmm. We'll see. All right. Lastly, I wanted to comment on the Apple podcast app. Listeners of the show, if you listen for a while, I've used pocket Cast as my podcast app forever. I love pocket Cast. It's a great app. I still use it for some things and I'll get to that in a second. But 
With iOS 16, the Apple Podcast app did get some visual redesigns, at least as far as the now playing page on an episode and things like that. And so I wanted to give it a fair go. I wanted to see, can I use the Apple Podcasts app for my podcast listeners? 70% of the listeners of this show use the stock Apple Podcasts app. And so I know that's the experience a lot of you have when you listen to the show. And I was curious, how, what is that experience like? So the first thing I realized when switching back to the Apple Podcasts app full time, I really needed to make sure that all the episodes in the shows that I follow were marked as played. So only the most recent episodes would be listed in like the now playing and the latest episodes menu in the library tab. And so it's always a chore. It's always a chore. And that like the last time I tried Apple Podcasts, I didn't think about that because in Pocket Casts, I use my up next list as kind of like what I'm list what I'm about to listen to. And Apple Podcasts, the up next list changes depending on where you tap an episode. Like if you tapped an episode in the first tab in the listen now tab your up next episodes might change as opposed to if you go to the library tab and hit latest episodes, then your up next episodes will change there. Pocket Cast, and I, I like this behavior, your up next episodes never change unless you add something to it or manually remove it. Or if you listen to something to its completion and then it will remove it from your up next list. And that was where I managed the episodes I was about to listen to in my podcast app. And so that was a behavior I had to realize needed to be different. I needed to mark all the episodes as played that I didn't intend to listen to and only have the latest episodes show up as unplayed. After I did that, I realized what I was looking for in an up next list was in the library tab in the latest episode menu. The latest episodes showed me new episodes of the podcast I follow that I haven't listened to yet and that I wanted to listen to. And I can hit play on something there and it would mostly follow the order of episodes that I have there as in like it will play what's the episode next in the list as next. Sometimes it doesn't. It's weird how kind of that up next menu still works. And so I would like a little more granular control over that up next list. That's something Pocket Cast gives you where you can say when a new episode of this show comes out, put that episode at the top of my up next list. So that will be the very next episode that plays when I'm done listening to this episode I'm currently listening to or put it at the bottom of the list, because I like this show, but if another show comes out that I like more, I want that episode at the top. So that's a little more granular control that I would like in the stock app. Yeah, Apple became allergic to settings uh, somewhere around iOS 7, and they've just never recovered. They're getting better, but they're still not quite there. Um, I switched back to the podcast app about February or March of this year, and I've been sticking with it. Uh, quite quite enjoy it. Um, I'm, I, I enjoy Overcast. I like the smart speed stuff. I found that I was letting it fall to the background a little too much and missing what people was saying. And anyway, I just wanted to, uh, to retry just listening to podcasts a little bit more like everyone else would. Um, so I've been using it and I will say, yeah, the, uh, the up next, especially just doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if you're, um, like me and follow a lot of like, like TV show podcasts, um, and, and mm. watch the episode and listen to the podcast while you're, directory inventory of episodes is going to grow and grow. Um, and your up next is not going to respect that. Um, and it's going to always try to show you like eight episodes ahead of your TV show because that's the newest episode that came out for the podcast. And it's a little broken needs to be fixed, but I found that I manually managing my up next list, uh, the now playing, um, playlist is uh, the best way to go. And to make this even simpler, yeah. Take advantage of Apple Podcasts um, stations. It's a terrible name for a good feature. They're basically folders yes. that automatically sort your podcasts. My folders are Apple Tech, Productivity, Conversations, News, Politics, uh, TV, Movies, and Gaming. So that splits up all my podcasts. And as they come in, I can see counters on each one of new episodes in each category. I go in, hit the ellipsis, say Add to Up Next play last or play next, depending on the priority I'd like to give them. And that's how I manage my podcast listening. It's a little more manual. Yeah. Sure. I'd like it there to be more automation and more automatic sorting for me. But for now I'm actually enjoying using Apple's podcast player. It's uh, not been terrible, but it definitely needs improvement. No. And it's nice, especially with home pods because Siri will more easily respond to podcast playing requests when it's the built-in podcast app. You can program shortcuts that trigger pocket casts and overcast, but just because it's a tight integration and it's an Apple first party app, 
Siri controls for the Apple Podcast app are just better. Some other things I would like to see is be able to increase the skip forward time. Right now, the maximum is 60 seconds. I listen to some podcasts that have some very long ad breaks, and so I would like that to increase to like two minutes. That's what I had in Pocket Cast. Yeah, Merlin Mann makes an ad break into a, a story session, and sometimes it's like, man, <laughs> I just want to get back to the show. <laughs> and I listen to the Smartless podcast with like Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and Sean Hayes, and their ad breaks are like six minutes. Oh, wow. And so I, yeah, and like they're very long, but they're like the number one show in Apple Podcasts. They can do that. I also wish there were chapter skip controls on the new now on the now playing screen. You have to scroll down to chapters and tap one manually or in pocket cast and overcast. You can just tap a forward chapter, like go to the next chapter dedicated button. That would be nice. And I've actually told the Apple podcast team this one, but show notes still cut off after a certain amount of text. So the Apple insider show notes don't show up completely you lose some of the bottom links and some other stuff down at the bottom because there's like a maximum character count where in pocket cast overcast and other apps there is no maximum so you get the full notes so those are just some still things i'm hoping to change but i will say after using it for a couple weeks as my main podcast player it is very usable i do like some things about it again the siri integration some of the the widgets are nice i found that the apple podcast widget a little more stable than some of the third-party podcast widgets. I do hope they do like lock screen widgets would be nice. And the Apple Watch app for the Apple Podcast Player is also very good, I would say on par with Pocket Cast. So overall, I'm going to keep sticking with it. I'm going to keep trying the Apple Podcast app as my main listening app because you also get those built-in subscriptions. And I'm thinking about subscribing to some shows just directly in Apple Podcasts because it's easy and it's really nice. So we'll see. That's been my thoughts on it so far. I'll, I'll provide some more as we go. All right, well, that's been quite a show. Thanks for sticking with us, listeners. If you have any questions for Wes about his review for the iPhone 14 Pro Max, you can tweet at him or tweet at myself. Our Twitter handles are in the show notes. If you haven't yet, we'd encourage you to leave a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And you can support the show right there in the podcast app or at patreon.com slash appleinsider. Get an ad-free version of the show and early access when you support the show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.